Who's heard of an artist by the name of Vincent van Gogh? Raise your hand. Okay, I was listening to something this morning. This is not, we're going to start off, but this actually falls in line with what I'm going to be sharing with today. And, and a, a person who's somewhat of an art critic, he's, not a, he's actually a pastor of a church, and he was asked, what's your favorite Vincent van Gogh piece? And he said his favorite piece was Vincent van Gogh's self-portrait. Apparently, he painted it while he was in an asylum. Uh, he had, and, and, and he said, what's unique about this piece of art is that because he cut off his ear, um, and some people say he cut off his ear for the reason of pain, a prostitute apparently, but he's in this asylum, so he's, he, he's basically at his lowest. And the portrait is painted with his deformity, I guess you could call it, with his scarred head facing the audience, which is quite uncommon for around that time. Usually when you have pieces of art, it's usually the perfection, it's usually the... the, 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 the the immutability or the, the, just how good it looks where Van Gogh in the least of his moments where he was humiliated, where he was scarred physically, where he was in an asylum basically being called crazy and he bears his soul in this, this artwork. And this pastor said this, this pastor said the reason why I like that piece is because it's a reminder for me that I am not perfect. It's a reminder for me that regardless if I'm a pastor or not, regardless if I'm a leader or not, regardless of where I am or not, or, or successful, or, I am in need. I am scarred by sin. I am in need continually for the grace and for the love and for the mercy of God and whatever my situation may be, which actually falls in line with what I want to share with you today. Last week, we looked at, as John reminded us, the call of Peter. And, and a wonderful sister last week, uh, my sister Milan, she was sharing with me just like, and it was wonderful seeing the wonderful choices that Peter and, and James and John and Andrew and all these guys made in deciding to follow Jesus as we sang this morning with the kids. And my sister Milan made mention, well, you know, Peter was also one who failed miserably, which he did, which he did. And while we can look at the wonderful choices, the wonderful statements, the words that come from the disciples' mouths in relation to the, the, the relationship and the revelation God had given them of Jesus Christ, we also learn just as much, if not more, from their failures as well. That they were, as Peter shared last week, depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. And so today, what I want us to do is look at from Matthew chapter 26. The actual, if you read the whole passage, it's verses 47 through to 74, which is the end of the chapter. But I want to look at the, the passage between 30, 47 and 58 and, and look at what I've called today the disciples' fall. We've gone from the disciples' call, yes, and the wonderful victories and wonderful lessons that are learned, but also to the disciples' fall and what we can learn from them and how Jesus interacts with them and the consequences that have taken place in those failures. Because I know for a fact that every time I look in the mirror, I see a man that is full of faults. And I think all of us are the same. Regardless of the title pastor I have, it shows, if anything, when I look at myself, the more I read the scriptures, the more I see the greatness of who God is, the more I look at creation around me and see the, the beauty of God's love, and not only in creation, but in the faces of my brothers and sisters here, the more I see this, the more I see my need for God. 
the more I need him to change me, the more I need him to move my heart, the more that I need him to take my eyes off myself and even off other people around me and focus solely upon him. So I'm going to open a word of prayer. And, and I, I forgot to ask this of Tommy, uh, Pam, and, and Simon, but I'm going to, we're going to sing that Let There Be Light at the end of the service. Just because it, it, it just, yeah, that's all I can say. Yeah, well, I'm going to bring it up afterwards. So let's open a word of prayer and let's see what God can teach us about the weakness of these disciples, or through the weakness of these disciples for ourselves. Let's pray. Father, we, we come before you, and we thank you that you have spoken light into each of our lives. We thank you for the revelation of your son, Jesus Christ, the greatness of his love, the beauty of his person, and how in him we are given life. We are taken from darkness to light. We have made new creations. We have our names written in the book of life. We have the honor and privilege to be called your son and daughter. Father, I ask that this morning you will speak to us. We need you to open the the scriptures to us. We need you to bring about a revelation in each of our minds and in each of our very beings, to our very soul, that would bring about a transformation that would not only glorify you, but enable us to become more like your son. So I ask that this morning you will speak to us. Please help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've got your Bibles, please turn to Matthew 26. I'm not going to read the whole passage because it's a huge passage. There are three small sections I want us to look at as we look at what I call the fall of the disciples. The first one we're going to look at is from verses 47 to 50 of Matthew 26. And this is what we read. While he was still speaking, meaning Jesus, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. If we're going to look at the disciples' fall, I look at this first part regarding Judas, the fall of self-centered greed. Plain and simple. The fall of self-centered greed. Judas represents the self-centered heart. The heart full of greed that, due to the influence and the responsibility of caring for the money bag, Actually, caring for the finances of Jesus' ministry, he fell victim to the law of the pride of life. He fell prey to the law of the lust of the human heart. He fell prey to the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh by having that. You read in John chapter 12, verses 4 to 6, I sort of paraphrase it. It says that Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. This is when the, the woman named Mary comes in to wash the feet of Jesus with an expensive, with expensive uh, perfume, like a, a, a spikenard, it's called. And she washes it, and Judas says this, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wage. He did not say this in verse 6 because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He used to help himself to what was put into it. Matthew 24, verse 14, 16, 14 to 16 says something similar, that Judas Iscariot, 
when it came to the betrayal of Jesus, went to the chief priests and he asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver Jesus over to you? What did they do? They counted out 30 pieces of silver, gave it to him, to which he then, it says this in verse 16, he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. What then do I learn from the fall of this disciple Judas? This is what it tells me. That if I spend all my time looking for more than what I already have in Christ, I will be on this continuous futile search for fulfillment. In other words, search for greed, uh, fulfillment. In other words, greed that will always leave me wanting. Think about this. He had the greatest of teachers, and he spent three years with him in his presence, listening to the truths of God, listening to the gospel that was promoted and who he was. He saw the miracles performed where the dead were raised to life, where the lame were made to walk. He, he saw the blind made to see. He saw the greatest of provisions continually for three years, this guy, Judas. He had Jesus Christ himself, the Lord of all creation, invest himself into Judas's life. And yet, and yet, Judas was untouched. And yet, Judas was untransformed. Why? Because he was taken by something more than what he had in Christ. He was captured more by what finances and what wealth and what popularity could give him rather than being content of being known as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so what Judas does here is what we are continually tempted to do when we are confronted by temptation. And what does Judas do? He gives into it. It is why we are told in the scriptures to guard our hearts for everything we do flows from it. Proverbs 4.23. It is why we are to cast down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. 2 Corinthians 10.5. That's in the New King James. See, he chose, he chose, not, his heart was basically like the path. Remember what we said in this parable of the sower? When the word of God goes out, the seed that is cast, Judas's heart was the path, was the hard ground where the enemy would come in and snatch. I, I don't think Judas deliberately went out there. I think at the start he was captivated by it. I think at the start he was like, wow, look at this. Wow, look at that. And what's amazing is this. What's amazing is this. No one suspected Judas. No one suspected him. When Jesus said, one of you will betray me, what did the disciples say? They didn't all sit there and go, oh, that's Judas. He, I know what he's going to do. He's gonna. No one said that. What did they say? They said, is it me, Lord? Is it me? Am I, am I going to be the one to betray you? So convincing was the life that Judas lived within the very presence of Jesus Christ that no one suspected him. 
that's, that is a, that's, that's amazing that that would take place. We think it would be so easy. We, we always think, we always think that we would never fall to such things. We always think that we would always make the right choices. We always think that. But if I learn anything from the fall of Judas, it's that I understand that I am susceptible to do the same type of fall. It may not be to betray the person of Christ as he did, but it may be to compromise the standards that he has called me to live by. It may be to look at, say, I don't know, a promotion at work as taking a higher priority than spending time with God. It may be the popularity of how my work colleagues see me as opposed to spending time investing into my children. It may be, I don't know, it may be even just not wanting to share the gospel of Christ in order to be accepted by people who don't know him. I can't choose. I've been reading a book with my brother Kenny, Disciplines of a Godly Man. If, even if you're not a man, you should read this book, Disciplines of a Godly Man. It's an excellent book. And the chapter labeled Purity, Arkent Hughes makes this observation. He says that the enemy, when we are tempted, the enemy doesn't fill us with a hatred of God when temptation comes our way, but rather fills us with a forgetfulness of God. Not a hatred for him, but a forgetfulness of him. And you see that, I believe it's in 2 Samuel 11, with the temptation of David. David did not hate God when he saw Bathsheba. He merely forgot him and gave in to such temptation. That's why we are to be careful. We're to be sober. We're to be vigilant for our adversary, the devil, can fill our lives with so much, quote, good stuff that we will miss out on the God stuff. I always remember that quote before, you know, don't be content with good when you have God's best awaiting you. And that's why we need to be careful. We need to be careful that we don't have the disciples fall of, notice that, self-centered greed. But that's the first thing. That's one of the ways that we can fall. The second one is this. What I call is the fall of thoughtless reaction. The, the fall of thoughtless reaction. This is from Matthew 26, verses 51 to 54. Read this with me. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. So they've come to arrest Jesus. One particular guy reacts, grabs a sword, and cuts off an ear. We are told in John's gospel that this is Peter, and that he cuts off the servant Malchus's ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Verse 53, do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? As parents, you are susceptible to this. I am susceptible to this. As people, we are susceptible to this. You hear something, you see something, and without any context, without any knowledge, what do you do? You react. I've done this so many times with my kids where I've walked in. It's always, okay, here's, here's what we're taught in playing sport. I know it's a sport analogy. I apologize for this. But one thing I got taught in sport, that if someone punches you, like if you always throw the first punch, it's the guy who throws the second punch that always gets penalized because they see it. And so I, I never used to do that. I never used to throw the first punch. I always used to throw the second. 
and I'd always get penalized. You could count on me playing a rugby game, I'd give away at least three penalties every game. One was for a late tackle, deliberately, and everything else was because of a reaction. It was just a reaction. I'd say to the ref, but, 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 but the ref doesn't care. All he sees is me punch somebody. And I do this with my kids. I've seen the kids do this. I hear one thing, bang, I turn around, I see the other kid hit the other one. Oh, you're in trouble now. And they say to me, but, 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 I don't want to hear it. And, and, you get, and, that, and that's what happens. This is, this is Peter. No context, no framing, just action. And Peter is best described this way. For example, in Matthew 16, 21 to 23, you have Peter rebuke Jesus. So Matthew 16, Peter comes with a great revelation when he says, who do men say that I am and who do you say that I am? They are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus says, well, then I'm going to go, I'm going to be arrested, and I'm going to be crucified. Then what does Peter do? No, you're not. And he starts telling off Jesus for that's going to happen. And then Jesus ends up calling him what? Get behind me, Satan. Why? Because he just reacts. No friend, he didn't like what he heard, heard, so he just reacted. His refusal to have his feet washed in John 13, 6 to 10, Jesus starts washing the the disciples' feet. Gets to Peter, Peter says, no, no, don't, don't don't wash my feet. And then he goes, well, if you're going to wash my feet, wash my my head also, please. And he just just reacts. What does Jesus say? If I don't wash your feet, you're going to have no part with me. Even the Mount Transfiguration, when Jesus sees Moses and Elijah and they come walking down, Peter just, he's got to say something. He just goes, ah, let's build a booth for you and, and for Moses, for Elijah. He just, he just reacts. He just says something. His willingness to say that he would even go to prison for, and even, he said he would even not only go to prison, but even die for Jesus when his loyalty was questioned in Luke 22, 31 to 33, which results in what? Jesus telling him, before the cock crows, you're going to deny me three times. He just reacts. In each instance, Jesus sets him straight from Jesus calling him Satan, telling Peter to have no part with him, and announcing Peter's denial. One of the things about this is that these actions is that you think you know more than you actually do. Thinking you have more control in a situation you have no control in. That you have more say or more understanding in the situations that you're faced with. That's the, what, the fault that Peter has here. What Peter does is he relies on human resources to come up with a human solution that can cut out, that can cut out and eliminate the divine working or the divine solution that God wants to work in your life. That's what happens when we react. This doesn't mean that we don't play a part. This doesn't mean we exclude or exempt ourselves from responsibility. But what it does mean is this, that we need to take a step back and do away with thoughtless reactions and instead come under divine wisdom. What does Paul say? That our power would not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. But that's what a disciple's fall. This is what we do. We do this continually. We, we just react thoughtlessly. That's, that's the second one. That's the second one. The third one is what I call the fall of conditional following. I'm not going to spend too much time here. I've got to share this before. In, in verses 57 and 58, we read this. Uh, this is when Jesus had been arrested. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. Verse 58. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. Now, I have shared this fact several times. Verse 58, Peter followed at a distance. We've been talking about following. 
We looked at the call of Matthew, and when he got up and followed, he left his job and followed Jesus. We looked last week about how Peter and then James and John, how they left the catch of fish that was about going to sink two boats and follow Jesus. Here we read about Peter following Jesus at a distance. He followed him just far enough away where he could profess to be a follower of Jesus, but also he followed far enough away that when someone confronted him, he could deny knowing Jesus. In other words, he followed on his terms. He followed conditionally. He followed what accommodated him and his lifestyle. And the thing is that when Jesus was, um, when Peter was challenged in verses 69 through 74 of Luke, what you see is, is Peter not just denying him, saying, I don't know. This is him making a stand. He's drawing his line in the sand saying, I have nothing to do with him. I don't want anything to do with him. That's the type of denial that he was saying, which is this challenge for us, okay? These three things, whether it be the fall of self-centered greed, whether it be of thoughtless reaction, whether it be of conditional following, we are all susceptible, if not doing those things in our lives right now. And we've all given into those things at one time or another and how we deal with our children and how we deal with our spouse and how we deal with our work, the way we prioritize things in our lives, the way we value our, our jobs and, and ha- have our whole identity summed up in what we do in our work or how people perceive me or what people expect me to do and how we focus everything on there and completely ignoring everything that Jesus is and everything Jesus has made us in himself. That's what we do. That's what you have done. And I know for a fact that you've all done this because I do the same thing. And I'm guilty of it just as much as you are. But the purpose of this message is not to point my finger at you and say, bad Christian, naughty Christian, God is so disappointed in you. No, that's not the point of this message. The point of this message is what Jesus does after this. The point of this message is that the resurrected Savior and what he does and reestablishing of how he works, how he changes the thoughts and the attitudes, how he works, regardless of our uselessness, regardless of our failures, what he does. See, like Judas, in heart I have desired greedily that which would appease my own selfish desires. It could be me looking for my identity and what my job gives. It might be what I, I, I long for from my employers. But the greed of such things may have come at the cost of betraying Jesus and all that he stands for. Has it come at the cost of me standing before him with integrity and a clear conscience? Like Peter, do we react without thinking instead of relying on the Lord? Do I seek out my will over his, my reasoning over his word, and my strength and resources over his his spirit? Do I find it far more comfortable with following Jesus at a distance, having a walk of convenience that gives me the so-called freedom of having my feet in both camps. As I said, the focus of this message is to see how great Jesus is. It's to see the magnitude of his grace, to see the depths of his love, to see the beauty of his mercy and the abundance of his forgiveness. And the disciples' failures I see the consequences of sin. For example, Judas, although remorseful, was not repentant. 
You read in Matthew 27 verses 1 to 5 that in the taking of his own life, we see the consequences of his sin being paid for, not only in his physical death, but in his separation from God. That was the consequence of it. Sin, we have to understand this, sin always has consequences. Always. The private sin that you do when no one else is around, when you think nobody's looking, the private sin when you're at home by yourself, that has a consequence. Firstly, it breaks your fellowship with God. It could even affect your relationship with others. But there are always consequences. For Judas, it was the greatest of consequences, separation completely. Mark 14, 21, people have said, well, you know, Judas, when he hung himself, or the fact that he was remorseful, that means that he was okay with God. No, you read Mark 14, 21, it says, woe to the man that betrays the son of man. It would have been better for him if he had not even been born. One commentator put it this way, the answer is that Judas was like all of us on the inside, torn by opposite impulses, He should have been better or he should have been worse. If he had been a better man, he would never have betrayed the Lord. If he had been worse, he wouldn't have felt so miserable. He died a tragic death, miserable and guilt-ridden with the blood of the Son of God on his hand, on his hands. You see, this disciples 4 points to the truth of 1 Timothy 6.10. For the love of money is what? The root of of all evil. It says in the NIV, there's a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. That's why we need to guard our hearts. For all that Judas was witness to, he never truly experienced the transforming message of the gospel. In the case of the others, we are told in uh, Matthew 26, 56, with all the other disciples, that they all ran that they all ran. I'm, I'm, okay, how can I put this? I think for many of us, when we think about various situations that we could be placed in, we think, we think we'll be the hero of our own story. We think, we're like, we're like Peter who said, I'll never leave you. I'll even die for you. That's what we think. We convince ourselves that if something happens, I'll, I'll jump in and I'll do this and I'll do that and I'll do the other. That if someone came in today and said to us and challenged us, deny your faith or you will die. Deny your faith or you'll lose your job. Deny your faith or you'll lose your house. And we all think, oh, yeah, I'll be okay with that. That's all right. Would we? Would we? I was sharing this with you. I I I, I was telling Terry and Kenny this. Um, I got assaulted on Friday by one of the students. But I wouldn't call it an assault. Was, uh, I was teaching in class, and one of the, one of the children in one of the units, so he, he, he's, he's, he's autistic, and um, some stuff happened, and, and I was saying to him, look, you can't go yet because of the stuff that you've done. You've got to wait till everyone else leaves, then you can leave. And so I was telling Eva as well, that's right. And, and so he, he, um, he, he got up, and, I, and he, he sort of ran at me, and I put my hand out to stop him, and, and I stopped him. He's only a little guy. And so I stopped him, just standing there, and he's going, oh, and he, he starts yelling and, and things. And, and all the other guys left, and I says, all right, you can go now. And so I let him go, and he goes past me, and he turns around, and he punches me as hard as he can which felt like this. That, that's, that's what it felt like. I was sort of like, did someone, like, <laughs> did somebody, somebody touch me? Like, and I only knew he punched me because one of the other teachers aides saw it and, 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 and stuff. And then he ran off and I was like, oh, okay. And, and he ran off and he ran fast. He ran, he ran fast. 
And uh, it, it was funny. It was really funny. But like, that was easy because he was only a little kid. He was a little kid. And I, I don't, you know, it's not like I'm angry at him. And then he comes back and he's come, he comes back to get his bag and, I, and he sees me. And so you're going to come back to get his bag. And he yelled at me. He says, no! And then he runs off again. And so I go, all right, then that's, uh, that's, that's waiting for you. But here's the thing. I was thinking to myself, that's, that's easy. That's easy if I've got a, a, a small year seven kid, you know, who, who, who does something like that. that that's easy. I, that, that's easy. What if the guy was a six foot four Polynesian guy? I'd like to think, I'd like to think that I'd sit there and say, you can't go. Most probably I'd say, door's yours, man. That's probably what I most probably would say, you know. And so the reality that we're faced with is this. If the, the, the courage that we profess to have isn't really ours. The strength that we profess to have isn't ours. The abilities that we profess to have is not ours. You, you don't know what you're going to... Corey Ten Boone, Corey Ten Boone asked her dad, what will happen? If you ever get the chance to read Corey Ten Boone's um, testimony, please read it. But when she was confronted, when she was in a, in a concentration, concentration camp, she was going to leave, she remembered something that her dad taught her when it came about death. And he said to her, and explained this to her, and he said, he said to her, when we go on a trip on a train, when do I give you the ticket? And she says, right before you hop on the train. And he said, so it is when it comes to death. That when it's time to go see your father in heaven, he will give you the ability, the capacity, whatever it is that you need to pass through the valley of the shadow of death and be with him. See, we never know what we're going to do until we're actually in the situation. But that's why you and I need to do what? We need to pour over the scriptures. We need to rely on him and what his promises have to say and not what we think and so when you look at the others when all the disciples ran they ran which is what we would do as well but we are given this insight into that failure is that after the crucifixion of our lord where are the disciples on 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 the first day of the week they're hiding who are the first people that go to the tomb women the women go to the tomb that even in death, they want to be near the Lord. Even in death, they want to be whatever it is. But see, Jesus revealed himself to them. You know why? Because they were there. Because they were there. He didn't reveal himself to the disciples because none of them were around. They were still hiding. They were still fearful. The news of Jesus' resurrection came to them, and then what does he say to the, to the women? He says to the women, remember what he said. He goes to this, and this is what I like. In verse 7 of Matthew chapter 16, he says, Go, tell his disciples and Peter. Go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Go and tell his disciples and Peter. What did Peter do? Peter denied him three times adamantly. What did Peter do? Peter ran. Peter considered himself and distanced himself from Jesus Christ, and yet Jesus Christ says what? Go tell Peter that this is where I'm going to be. What do we do? When somebody betrays us, when somebody hurts us, when somebody does something to us, what do we do? Don't want anything to do with them no more. You had your chance, it's gone. And yet Jesus calls Peter back. And if you look, 
in John chapter 21, verses 15 to 23, you have what's called in my Bible, the reinstating of Peter. When Jesus asks him three times, no less, do you love me? Do you love me? A conversation where Jesus then personally commissions him with the task of shepherding his people. He says, feed my lambs. He says, feed my sheep. My sheep. And the emphasis here isn't the ability or inability of Peter. It's, it's not, the, not the, the, the courageous or the cowardly acts of the disciples. What the emphasis is, is how a great God, through the gift of his son, Jesus Christ, and the empowerment of his spirit, can take broken vessels and make them useful. That's what the focus is. I look in this room, including myself, and I see the failures that we've done. You know the failures that you've done. You know the mistakes that you've had. You know the mistakes that you've made. You know the broken vessels that you are. And yet it's in those broken vessels that God himself invests his treasure. His treasure to enable a broken vessel to be something useful, whether it be a usefulness in raising your children in the ways of God, whether it be the usefulness of being a shining light to your friends at work, whether it be a usefulness of, something, of being encouragement to another brother or a sister or a spouse, whatever it might be, to take a broken vessel like this and make something beautiful. That's what this focus is, that in the disciples' fall, he is a God of forgiveness. We read this, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive all their sins and remember their sins no more. Jeremiah 31, 34. Psalm 103 verse 4 says this, but with you there is forgiveness. Now get this. So that we can, with reverence, serve you. Isn't that beautiful? I want to read that verse again. With you, God, there is forgiveness so that we can, with reverence, serve you. We are forgiven so we can serve him. He is a God of reconciliation. Romans 5.10, for if while we were God's enemies, we were, sorry, we were reconciled to him through the death of a son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? 2 Corinthians 5.18, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And get this, gave us the ministry of what? Reconciliation. We're given forgiveness to do what? To serve. We are reconciled for what? For the ministry of reconciliation. If reconciliation means about establishing friendships, we've been given this ministry to be able to go out and say, this is how you can be friends with the God most high. He's given that to us. He's given that to you as broken vessels. We read how he is a God of grace, of restoration, of mercy, and of deliverance. In Job 33, 26 to 28, I love these verses. Then that person can pray to God and find favor with him. They will see God's face and shout for joy. That's grace. He will restore them to full well-being. That's restoration. And they will go to others and say, I have sinned. I have perverted what is right, but I did not get what I deserved. That's mercy. 
God has delivered me from going down to the pit, and I shall live to enjoy the light of life. And that is deliverance. Yes, the disciples fall, but we know a God who knows that we are but flesh and knows that we will fall, who knows that we are weak. A God who, with that knowledge of us, reaches out to work in us as his workmanship. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says, and to be continually involved with us right up until the day of Jesus Christ, according to Philippians 1.6, that the beauty of God's grace will captivate our hearts and force us to rely on, to rest in and respond to his son, Jesus Christ. He who wants to connect with you and maintain and sustain and then reconnect you whenever we fall away. He did it with Peter. He did it with the disciples. He'd do it with you. There's a Chuck Swindoll. He says this. When God is involved, anything can happen. Be open. Stay that way. God has a beautiful way of bringing good vibrations out of broken chords. God has a beautiful way of bringing good vibrations out of broken cords. My fellow broken vessels, may God work his wonders in, with, and through you so that we might also be sounding those vibrations out of broken cords for the glory of God, for the praise of his name, and for the proclaiming of his gospel, regardless of the situation that we're in. Oh, Lord Jesus, we come before you this morning. We pray that you will have your way in each of our lives. I thank you for your grace, your undeserved grace that gives us so much that we're truly undeserving of. Thank you so much for your mercy that withholds that judgment which we do deserve. Thank you for your spirit who now indwells with us and sealed us to eternal life. I thank you for your church, for the brothers and sisters that are here now, for those watching at home. I thank you for the saints that you have blessed us with. As we go from here, may our eyes not be on man, but on you. As we go from here, may we learn from the falls that we experience. May we experience your hand lifting us up, drawing us closer, calling out to us. Father, please have your will be done in this church as it is in heaven. Please have your will be done on earth. Please have your way. We ask for you to dismiss us now. And then as we leave here, may you continue to stir us, continue to encourage us, continue to draw us closer to yourself. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.